When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's get real. What's a reality show without a few little twists, eh? And today's show goes to 11. This is the best thing that could have possibly happened. I'm Jared Hall from Entertainment Weekly, and here's what to watch on Thursday, January 6th. We are counting down today's top three must-see picks from TV and movies. But first, your entertainment headlines. For a second year in a row, the Grammy Awards have been postponed due to COVID-19, this time because of the Omicron strain. A rescheduled date has not been shared just yet. The ceremony was scheduled to be held at the end of this month at the Crypto.com Arena, formerly known as the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Trevor Noah, host of last year's postponed and scaled back ceremony, is still scheduled to return as host this year. Also for the second year in a row, Sundance Film Festival's in-person gathering in Park City, Utah, has been canceled due to rising COVID-19 cases. The festival is now pivoting to online events instead. Sundance Film Festival will kick off on Thursday, January 20th as planned and will continue online for 11 days. It's time for Michael Imperioli to take a vacation, courtesy of HBO. The Soprano star has officially signed on to season two of the dark comedy The White Lotus. Imperioli is the first lead cast member to be announced for the second season, while Jennifer Coolidge is rumored to be returning in some capacity. Imperioli's character is Dominic DeGrasso, described as a man traveling with his elderly father and recent college graduate son. And to check out Emma Watson and Emma Roberts' playful online exchange about the mistake in the Harry Potter reunion where a childhood photo of Roberts was accidentally used, be sure to check that out at EW.com, which of course is where you can find more on all of these stories, plus other news, reviews, interviews, and much more. All right, let's move on to our top three picks for today, starting with number three, Women of the Movement. ABC's new limited series tells the story of Mamie Till Mobley, whose son Emmett Till was brutally murdered in the Jim Crow South in 1955. Unwilling to let Emmett's murder disappear from the headlines, like so many before him, Mamie risked her life to find justice, emerging as an activist who helped ignite the most famous phase of the civil rights movement. Here's a preview. The whole city is praying for you and your boy. I want a public wake. Open casket. People need to know what they did. It's working. It's gonna be a trial. They're threatening to kill her if she goes down there. I want to become that brave woman. One mother can make a difference. The death of my son has shown me whatever happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of all of us 
It is a heavy story, no doubt, but an important one. Tony winner Adrian Warren stars as Mamie Till Mobley in the series. Here's the actress on what she hopes viewers take away from the story. Viewers can expect to learn about this story in a ways they have never learned about it before. They can expect to get to know Emmett Till. So many times you hear about incidents like this and you get to see a picture, a snapshot of a human being that was taken away from us. But you don't get to know who they are. You don't get to know those mothers. You don't get to know the family members. You get to see a family. You get to hopefully look at this story and it humanizes these incidents for you. That when you find out that someone's son is taken from them or their mother or, or, their, or their child is taken from them, that you realize that it's not just a person, a picture on a screen, but that's an empty seat at your kitchen table. That that's an empty seat when you are having holidays. That that is someone's loved one. And I hope people are able to look at that and look at their own families and see that we are all human beings and we should respect each other and fight for one another as such. What more is there to say? Women of the Movement premieres tonight at 8 p.m. on ABC. Number two. We've got something special for today's number two pick. Today, HBO Max releases two new episodes of its post-apocalyptic miniseries Station Eleven, which is adapted from Emily St. John Mandel's 2014 novel. Star Mackenzie Davis recently chatted with Saya Rankin, the host of EW's upcoming book-to-screen adaptations podcast called Screen After Reading, about making that series. Hey, Saya, welcome back. Hi, Jared. Good to see you. Hello. Of course, likewise, same to you. So let's talk a bit about Station Eleven for folks who aren't familiar. And by the way, this book, it has so many fans. People love this. It is one of EW's top 10 fiction books of the 2010s. But for those who aren't familiar, in a nutshell, please tell folks what it's about. Oh, gosh. In a nutshell, I mean, it's about a pandemic. It's about a deadly flu that yeah. sweeps the world. And then there's, I think it wipes out like almost 96% of the population and the small group of people who are left essentially rebuild society from scratch without any technology. And the book follows like a group of intertwined characters pre-pandemic as the pandemic is hitting. And then in the after times when they have this traveling symphony that goes around the little camps of people who are left to perform Shakespeare, to like keep people's spirits up and bring culture to everyone. Um, and it really, it's such, it doesn't, it's, that sounds really like drab and depressing, but it is the least depressing book ever. It is so beautiful yep. <laughs> and people who read it just love it so much. It's such a good book, but it really just yep. elicits so many feelings and is such a love letter to our current society and, and culture and all of the things that we like have created mm -hmm. together essentially. It's really hard yeah. to even like talk about the book without getting emotional and starting to tear up. I'm so excited to see it on the big screen. <laughs> right. It's important to note what you're saying. You know, even though it is set in and around a pandemic, it's not about the pandemic. It's about so much more than that. And, you know, the human condition and the human spirit. And um, I'll leave it at that before I get all teary eyed. <laughs> but um, Mackenzie Davis, she is one of my favorite actresses. Folks love her in Halt and Catch Fire. And she was so good in the movie with Kristen Stewart, Happiest Season. And gosh, what does she, she's been in Blade Run and um, the, the Terminator when they rebooted those movies. What's your take on her in this role, but also her in general? Yeah, she's really, she's such a badass on screen. She's really, she's played a lot of really like physical roles. 
And this role is, of course, physical as well. I mean, she's kind of the main character. She's one of the founders of the Traveling Symphony. She, as a young girl, she was a young girl when the pandemic hit in the show. And so she kind of had a really rough upbringing. You know, she carries a knife everywhere. She fights. But a lot of this role is so much about her kind of remembering the past and processing what she went through. And so there's a lot of emotion that she has to show. And in person, I was really struck. She's really very kind of contemplative and uh, sensitive. And you really, you don't see a lot of like that same side of her that you've seen on screen. Um, And the way she kind of talks about reflect, like what being in this show has made her reflect on about her own pandemic experience and kind of our societies is all really fascinating. Well, speaking of our own pandemic experience, they were filming this show before the pandemic had to stop picked it back up. Tell me about that, that experience for them. Yeah. So I think it, it's like important to note, I mean, Emily St. John Mandel wrote this book in the early 2010s. It came out in 2014. Of course, it's a much more serious pandemic, the actual disease, but there are a lot of really eerie similarities in the ways that she wrote kind of like the first days of the pandemic and which makes it even, even eerier that they greenlit this show and started working on it before anyone knew what the coronavirus was. Um, and it was early, it was March, 2020. They had just like a couple of days of work on the show, everything shut down. And then it was a year ago in the summer, I believe that they all kind of came back together, but it was pre, they came back together pre-vaccine. So, you know, a lot of protocols, um, a lot of still very eerie work on set and so far as how they were working together. But it sounds like from talking to the people who worked on the show, that it really helped pull them out of any kind of pandemic despair or quarantine isolation despair that they had was kind of to have this higher purpose of helping get this show out. Um, and I don't think any of them imagined when they were making it so long ago that even like <laughs> thinking ahead to December 2021, January 2022, that was a future time in which this would still kind of be in the this would be in the past. Um, so it makes yeah. it all the more ironic, I guess, um, that we're in like this additional surge as we're all watching the show. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I know uh, the two of you spoke a bit about, uh, you know, kind of the the parallels of, you know, art and life. Uh, Have a listen to some of that interview. Were you familiar with Emily St. John Mandel and the novel before the project came to you? And kind of how did this project come across to you? And at what point did you like start to become familiar with the book and the source material? I I wasn't familiar with it at all until um, Carol and Patrick made me aware of it. And they kind of presented the idea for the project and this really beautiful sort of book and concept art and and like thesis for this world that was not a world ravaged by a pandemic, but that was like sort of enriched by the apocalypse, which sounded really beautiful to me and dark. And then, so I, I read the sort of treatment and then read Emily's book and then signed on and just thought it was a really, yeah, it's quite hopeful. I mean, it's funny because there were like times shooting it where, I, you know, we were shooting a show about a pandemic during a pandemic, but like second year of the pandemic where we'd already done a lot of it. And then you were like kind of shuttled back into a more, just the practicalities of shooting it being like quite isolated and not, um, it, uh, it is a very hopeful show. But the making of it was sometimes quite... (laughs) I think that's such a good point. I think a lot of people, when they hear the premise of the book or the show, the initial reaction after like what everyone has been through has... You could think like that's too dark for me or that's too upsetting, but it really is so hopeful. I mean, all of the... Like I could cry whenever I think about like the museum, the curator of the museum and all those beautiful things. But so were you on... Were you on set 
Because I know you guys kind of started working on the show before, like, March 2020. Yeah, Himesh and Matilda and Nabon, a bunch of people were shooting in February and January of 2020. And they were shooting the part of the show that's, like, which is a very small portion of the show when, like, the pandemic approaches and hits and then the rest of it is told in the future after everything. But they were shooting the part of the show when it approaches while those, like, waves of news were coming out of China and then Italy and sort of that, that you know, approaching tsunami was coming. And it's just such a... I mean, it's something that's, like, imperceptible in the document, but what a strange thing to have this, like, double awareness of an approaching thing while shooting about the thing... I don't know. It's really dense. And then breaking the shooting and then coming back and a whole year of information has elapsed in that time. And now you're shooting this thing that's suddenly reflective of a thing. Um, Lots of things. Do you think that you had, because when you came then to set in the second year of the pandemic to shoot this show about this topic, were you coming to it? Had you had, I mean, I don't want to ask if you had a good experience or a bad experience in the pandemic, but like all things considered, did you, were you feeling high or low or kind of like, how did you look to the project? Like a lot of people, when they kind of came back to work, it was a thing that saved them and pulled them out of something, but kind of what was your... I think, I mean, all things considered have had, I've been extremely lucky and nobody I know or love has been, you know, terribly affected by it other than the sort of amorphous grief of this experience. But I would say I, I sort of like put grief on layaway until this year. It was like the first year was kind of okay. I mean, it was, it wasn't, I, I was living with somebody and, and I don't know, there was just this sense of, I don't know, it wasn't like exciting, but it wasn't, I, I wasn't sad. I yeah. was, I was pretty okay for the first year. And then it felt like 2021, like, in January, I slipped and tore a muscle in my ankle. And it was like, I just felt sort of emotionally crippled for the whole year. There was this strange, like delayed sadness. So yeah, but then it was so like reflective of what the show's about of making art with friends. There was like, you know, these times of isolation and you're in Toronto and you're by yourself in your apartment and it's a very locked down city. And I couldn't walk at the time. So I was like crawling upstairs to go to the bathroom because the bathroom was on the top floor. Like some just weird moments of like, wow, what am I doing? But then you got to leave and go and be around like a hundred people at work and take your mask off and like cry together. And so there's, there's real like agony and ecstasy sort of walking in hand together. And say, you know, the thing with uh, book adaptations, folks always wonder, like, uh, is it going to be as good? I'm hearing that people, uh, fans of the book, do love the show just as much. Um, and, and rightfully so, one of the concerns is always, like, can they really do justice to, you know, those those fine details that, um, you know, really help bring these words to life. And you spoke with her a bit about that as well, right? Yeah, I did. And I think they did such a good job on the show of not only creating kind of the world and the visuals, but like little details that you don't necessarily pick up from reading the book. And I think a lot of it was the costuming as well. You really just have to watch the show to kind of know what I'm talking about. But Mackenzie explains a little bit about um, the work that they did behind the scenes to make all of the different elements of post-pandemic life really come to life. That's great. Here's a bit of that. When you read the book, were there any portions or scenes that like stuck out to you as either like, wow, I can't wait to recreate this or, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? (laughs) 
Um, I think because I was aware of the project before the book, I had, it, it felt like, I don't mean this dismissively at all, but like supplementary material, because it is, it is like of course, kind yeah. of a different beast. Like it's the source material, but it, it like expanded in many directions away from As the a book. good adaptation should. Of yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I think I was always just so curious to see how they were going to compose the traveling symphony in the wagons and these sort of like transformer trucks that turn into stages and lights and costume like I thought that the the like practicalities of life on the road were so interesting and I was like to an annoying degree I think just obsessed with like well, where are they getting the food from what's this happening why would there be a highlighter still wouldn't it have dried out and we would like double check everything that was still around but just how precious like their books were if a book in paper for 20 years I mean the I love that these objects became like jewels like you can't find there's libraries that are abandoned but like there's also people vandalize everything and burn things down anyways I just liked the like getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the like minutia of how you own something for a long time and how you travel from place to place and how you survive practically I've also been really struck by the costuming it's in so the traveling beautiful. symphony it's so beyond anything that my brain could put together when I was reading on the page. I love I love the costuming. I think it's so beautiful and all also transformative, but like not stripped of sex, which is like, I really hate like post-apocalyptic or like dystopian future world things where it's just like a constant war. Everybody's a man, even the women. And like, is just dirty and gross. And you're like, why are you alive? Like die, <laughs> like, why are you still alive? And I love that this show is such a compelling reason. Like people still are having sex and want to look nice and are like settling and making decisions for themselves. And they're not just like locked in battle all the time for no reason. Cause what's the battle for if there's no like joy at the end of it. Um, and I think there's so much joy and beauty in the show. And part of that is the costuming of like, I don't know. I thought this was cool, like as a top and like just yeah, the, the way practicality things are used so cool. of it. I mean, the way that the things that they're using for their makeup and even yeah. like the scene that I just watched last night was um, at the country club and like using the all of the golf gloves. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. think that's the kind of thing that like you don't think about maybe when you're reading the book is that you're really having to, you are having to get very creative and cobble together things from yeah. what you have. Like you're not going to just be wearing this suit that you have on now for 20, yeah. for 20 years. Well, for more with Mackenzie Davis, you can look for EW's Bold School on YouTube and EW.com. The Screen After Reading podcast premieres this spring, and Saya will be back tomorrow for one more day this week to talk about book adaptations. Saya, thanks so much, and see you tomorrow. Bye. See you next time. Trivia. It's trivia time. What author, who knows a little something about adapting books for TV, named Station Eleven their favorite novel of 2014? Leanne Moriarty, Diana Gabaldone, or George R.R. R. Martin? Stick around for the answer and our number one pick. What to Watch will be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam 
wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Welcome back to EW's What to Watch. Christmas movie season may be behind us, but GAC Family has some more seasonal entertainment with the new romance movie The Winter Palace, starring Danica McKellar and premiering Saturday at 8 p.m. The Wonder Years alum recently spoke to EW ahead of that premiere, and of course we asked her... What you watching? I mean, I'd love to plug GAC Family. It's a new network that my new movie is going to be on, and I've been watching their Christmas movies. <laughs> I mean, I don't know when this comes out, but uh, I'm a, definitely a Christmas movie fan. And, uh, I mean, how could I not in doing what I do? Uh, but I just, I love feel-good stuff. Also, Ted Lasso, which, again, is feel-good. I just like feel-good stuff. I like programming that leaves you feeling warm and fuzzy and leaves you with a feeling of optimism about the human race. Because I feel like we get so much of all the other stuff in the real world. You turn on the news and it's just like, no. <laughs> and, and, and how, you know, how powerful entertainment can be that it can help you to see the good in humanity. Ted Lasso certainly does that. If you've yet to catch up on the show, you can find it streaming on Apple TV Plus and you can find GAC Family on cable. Our number one pick of the day asks the age-old and morally ambiguous question, love or money? Fox's reality dating show Joe Millionaire, for richer or poorer, follows in the footsteps of its hit 2003 predecessor, but this time with a twist. Two single men are looking for love. One is a millionaire, and the other is an average Joe with an average salary. Twenty women will vie for their affection, not knowing which Joe has the dough. So, does money really matter, or will true love prevail? Here's a preview. One of these men is worth over $10 million, while the other is not. When someone tells me money doesn't matter, I think it's a lie. Money has always gotten in the way of relationships. I want whoever I'm with to love me for me and not the dollar amount in my bank account. I'm the best gold digger. You're trying to sabotage me. I like him. You accept this ring. <laughs> you can meet the Joes, who are actually named Stephen and Kurt, and their leading ladies when Joe Millionaire for Richer or Poorer premieres tonight at 8 p.m. on Fox. Lastly today, the answer to our trivia question. What author once named Station Eleven their favorite novel of 2014? Leanne Moriarty, Diana Gabaldon, or George R.R. R. Martin? Call it a game of tomes. The answer is George R.R. R. Martin. In early 2015, the Song of Ice and Fire author wrote on his Not a Blog, quote, this book should not have worked, but it does. It's a deeply melancholy novel, but beautifully written and wonderfully elegiac. A book that I will long remember and return to. Well, that is our show for today. We will have more news and must-see picks for you tomorrow, so be sure to follow or subscribe to What to Watch so you don't miss our daily recommendations, more of which can be found at EW.com. I'm senior editor Jared Hall. You can find us on Twitter at EW and at Jared Hall. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. What to Watch. 
Today's episode of What to Watch was written by Tyler Aquilina, edited and produced by Joshua Heller, hosted and produced by Jared Hall, and executive produced by Shana Naomi Crockmall.